What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Spiders are weird. Uh, The last recording I did, there was a spider on my wall that freaked me out, and that spider is still there in the exact same spot. I would think it's probably dead, except the last spider in my basement that I thought was sitting there for three days was probably dead. started moving when I poked him with a, a part of a lamp. So this one is alive, and I call him Pete, and he's stronger than any man. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books, for the most part, that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe, and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do, and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you, and maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. This episode is the second chapter in the story of the Iron Heel by Jack London. Clam pirate? Fish leader? These are real things from the previous episode that describe him before he became renowned author of animal books. It's a story about a sort of future totalitarianism going on uh, before 1984 was written. So it was supposed to be a leader of its time. Also, it was a leader in its time that it was written from the point of view of a woman. (laughs) Uh, But still, the sexism is there because the woman plays almost no role whatsoever uh, as she just narrates what her apparently more important husband is doing and saying throughout the story. The wife, Avis Everhard, wrote the Everhard Manuscript, which was discovered decades later about her husband, Ernest Everhard. And in the previous chapter, he was arguing with priests about being metaphysical or being a metaphysician, uh, two words that I spent roughly a half hour practicing because I screwed it up for some weird reason in the previous episode. Enjoy. Chapter 2. Challenges. 
After the guests had gone, Father threw himself into a chair and gave vent to roars of gargantuan laughter. Not since the death of my mother had I known him to laugh so heartily. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> okay, fine. I'll wager Dr. Hammerfield was never up against anything like it in his life, he laughed. The courtesies of ecclesiastical controversy, exclamation point. Did you notice how he began like a lamb, ever heard? I mean, how quickly he became a roaring lion. He has a splendidly disciplined mind. He would have made a good scientist if his energies had been directed that way. I need scarcely say that I was deeply interested in Ernest Everhard. It was not alone what he had said and how he had said it, but it was the man himself. I had never met a man like him. I suppose that was why, in spite of my twenty-four years, I had not married. I liked him. Mm. Semicolon. I had to confess it to myself. And... My like for him was founded on things beyond intellect and argument, regardless of his bulging muscles and prize-fighter's throat. He impressed me as an ingenious boy. I felt that under the guise of an intellectual swashbuckler, he was a delicate and sensitive spirit. I sensed this in ways I knew not, save that they were my woman's intuitions. Hmm. There was something in that clarion call of his that went to my heart. It still rang in my ears, and I felt that I should like to hear it again, and to see again that glint of laughter in his eyes that belied the impassioned seriousness of his face. And there were further reaches of vague and intermediate feelings that stirred in me. I almost loved him then, though I'm not confident, and I had never seen him again that the vague feelings would have passed away and I should easily have forgotten him. But I was not destined to never see him again. My father's newborn interest in sociology and the dinner parties he gave would not permit. Father was not a sociologist. His marriage with my mother had not been very happy. Well, that explains why he laughed when she died. And in the researches of his own science, physics, he had been very happy. But when my mother died, his own work could not fulfill the emptiness. Well, then why was he so jovial back then? At first, in a mild way, he had dabbled in philosophy, and then, becoming interested, he had drifted into economics, that makes sense, and sociology. He had a strong sense of justice, and he soon became fired with a passion to redress wrong. It is with gratitude that I hailed these signs of a new interest in life, though I little dreamed what the outcome would be. With the enthusiasm, enthusiasm of a boy, he plunged excitedly into these new pursuits, regardless of whether they led him. He had been used always to the laboratory, and so it was that he turned to the dining room, that he turned the dining room into a sociological laboratory, where here came to dinner all sorts and conditions of men. Scientists, politicians, bankers, merchants, professors, labor leaders, socialists, and anarchists. He stirred them into discussion and analyzed their thoughts on life and society. He had met Ernest shortly prior to the 
quote, preacher's night, unquote, and after the guests were gone, I learned how he had met him, passing down the street at night and stopping to listen to a man on a soapbox who was addressing the crowd of working men. The man on the box was earnest. Not that he was a mere soapbox orator. He stood high in the councils of, socialist, of the Socialist Party, was one of the leaders, and was acknowledged uh, in the philosophy of socialism. He had a certain clear way of stating the abstruse in simple language, was born an expositioner and teacher, and was not above the soapbox as a mean of interpreting economics to the working men. My father stopped to listen, became interested, affected a meeting, and, after quite an acquaintance, invited him to the minister's dinner. It was after the dinner that father told me what little he knew about him. He had been born in the working class, though he was a descendant of the old line of Everhards that for over two hundred years had lived in America. They actually have a little note there, like I'm supposed to click it and learn more about America, but I am learned from the last episode, never click that number. I will not learn the meaning of what they want to say with America, because I'll never get back to my chapter again. At ten years of age, he had gone to work in the mills, and later he served his apprenticeship and became a horseshoer. He was self-educated and taught himself German and French, and at that time was earning a meager living by translating scientific and philosophical works for a struggling socialist publishing house in Chicago. Also, his earnings were added to by the royalties from the small sales of his own economic and philosophic works. This much I learned of him before I went to bed, and I lay long awake, Listening in memory to the sound of his voice, I grew frightened at my thoughts. He was so unlike the men of my own class, so alien and strong. His masterfulness delighted me and terrified me. For my fancies want only, want only is one word on the Kindle. So that's kind of weird. I would think that that's probably two words, but maybe it's a Victorian word. That means the exact same thing as if he split it up. Roved until I found myself considering him as a lover. As a husband, I had always heard that the strength of men was an irresistible attraction to woman, but he was too strong. No! Exclamation point. No! Exclamation point. I cried out. It is impossible. Absurd. And on the morrow, I woke myself to, f I woke to find myself a longing to see him again. I wanted to see him mastering men in discussion, the war note in his voice, to see him in all his certitude and strength, shattering their complacency, shaking them out of their ruts of thinking. What if he did, swashbuckle? Mm -hmm, question mark. This is where the clam pirate comes in. This is his own personal experience that he's putting into his work. To use his own phrase, quote, it worked, comma, unquote. It produced effects, and besides, his swashbuckling was a fine thing to see. It stirred one like the onset of battle. Several days passed, during which I read Ernest's books, borrowed from my father. His written word was as his spoken word, clear and convincing. It was its absolute simplicity that convinced even while one continued to doubt. He had the gift of lucidity. He was the perfect expositor. Exposit exp I want to say exposition, but it's expositor, so I guess, okay, expositor. Yet, in spite of his style, there was much, eh, hmm, I did not like. 
he laid to great distress on what he called the class struggle, the antagonism between labor and capital, the conflict of interest. Father reported with glee Dr. Hammerfield's judgment of Ernest, which was to the effect that he was an insolent young puppy, made bumptious by a little and very inadequate learning. Also, Dr. Hammerfield declined to meet Ernest again. But Bishop Morehouse turned out to have become interested in Ernest and was anxious for another meeting. Quote, a strong young man, he said, quote, and very much alive, very much alive. But he is too sure, hmm, too sure. Yeah, again, the tone in this book. I'm trying to keep this uh, very PG, but it's always begging for me to make jokes. Ernest came one afternoon with father. The bishop had already arrived, and we were having tea on the veranda. Ernest's continued presence in Berkeley, by the way, was accounted for by the fact that he was taking special courses in biology at the university, and also that he was hard at work on a new book entitled Philosophy and Revolution. And it's got a number next to it, so apparently that means something. The veranda seemed suddenly to have become small when Ernest arrived. Not that he was so very large, M-dash. He stood only five feet nine inches, semicolon, but that he seemed to radiate an atmosphere of largeness. He stopped to meet me. He betrayed a certain slight awkwardness that was strangely at variance with his bold-looking eyes and his firm, sure hand that clasped for a moment in greeting. And in that moment, his eyes were just as steady and sure. There seemed a question in them at this time, as before he looked at me over long. Quote, I have been reading your working-class philosophy, I said, and his eyes lighted in a pleased way. Hmm. Of course, he answered, you took into consideration the audience to which it was addressed. Hmm. I did, and it is because I did that I have a quarrel with you, I challenged. I, too, have a quarrel with you, Mr. Everhard, Bishop Morehouse said. Ernest shrugged his shoulders whismically and accepted a cup of tea. The bishop bowed and gave me precedence. You forbent class hatred, I said. I consider it wrong and criminal to appear to all that is narrow and brutal in the working class. Class hatred is antisocial, and it seems to me antisocialistic. Not guilty, he answered. Class hatred is neither in the text nor in the spirit of anything I have ever written. Oh, I cried reproachfully and reached for his book and opened it. He sipped his tea and smiled at me while I ran over the pages. Page 132, I read aloud. The class struggle, therefore, presents itself in the present stage of social development between the wage-paying and the wage-paid classes. I looked at him. Eh. Mm, triumphantly. No mention there of class hatred, he smiled back. But, I answered, you say class struggle. A different thing from class hatred, he replied. And, believe me, we foment no hatred. We say that the class struggle is a law of social development. We are not responsible for it. We do not make the class struggle. We merely explain it. As Newton explained gravitation... We explain the nature of the conflict of interest that produces the class struggle. 
But there should be no conflict of interest, I cried. I agree with you heartily, he answered. That is what we socialists are trying to bring about, the abolition of the conflict of interest. Pardon me. Let me read an extract. Oh, he calls his own work an extract. He took his book and turned back several pages. Page 126, the cycle of class struggles which began with the dissolution of rude tribal communism and in the rise of private property will end with the passing of a private property in the means of social existence. (laughs) But I disagree with you, the bishop interposed, his pale ascetic face betraying, betraying by a faint glow the intensity of his feelings. Your premise is wrong. There is no such thing as a conflict of interest between labor and capital, or rather, there ought not to be. Thank you, Ernest said gravely. And by that last statement, you have given me back my premise. But why should there be a conflict, the bishop demanded warmly. Ernest shrugged his shoulders. Because we are so made, I guess. But we are not so made, cried the other. Oh, so now the woman's been pushed out of the conversation. I I don't know, I really want to paint this as being uh, sexist. I should give the book a chance. All right. Are you discussing the ideal man? Ernest asked, unselfish and godlike, and uh, so few in numbers as to be practically non-existent. Are you discussing the common and ordinary average man? The common and ordinary man was the answer. Who is weak and fallible, prone to error? Bishop Morehouse nodded. And petty and selfish? Again, he nodded. Watch out, Ernest warned. I said selfish. The average man is selfish, the bishop affirmed valiantly. Wants all he can get? Wants all he can get. True, but deplorable. Then I've got you, Ernest's jaw snapped like a trap. Let me show you. Here is a man who works on the street railways. He couldn't work if it weren't for capital, the bishop interrupted. True. But you will grant that capital would perish if there were no labor to earn the dividends. The bishop was silent. Won't you? Ernest insisted. The bishop nodded. Then our statements cancel each other, Ernest said in a matter-of-fact tone. And we are where we were. Now to begin again. The working men on the street railway furnish the labor. The stockholders furnish the capital. By the joint effort of the working men in the capital, money is earned. They divide between them this money that is earned. Capital's share is called mm, dividends. Labor's share is called wages. Very good, the bishop interposed. And there is no reason that the division should not be amicable. You have already forgotten what we had agreed upon, Ernest replied. We agreed that the average man is selfish. He is the man that is. You have gone up in the air and are arranging a division between the kind of men that ought to be but are not. But to return to the earth, the working man, being selfish, wants all he can get in the division. The capitalist, being selfish, want all he can get in the division. When there is only so much of the same thing, and when two men want all they can get of the same thing, there is a conflict of interest. This is the conflict of interest between labor and capital. 
And it is an irreconcilable conflict. As long as working men and capitalists exist, they will continue to quarrel over division. If you were in San Francisco this afternoon, you'd have to walk. There isn't a streetcar running. Another strike? The bishop queried with alarm. Yes, they're quarreling over the division of the earnings of the street railways. Bishop Morehouse became excited. It is wrong, he cried. It is so short-sighted of the part of the working men. How can they hope to keep our sympathy? When we are compelled to walk, Ernest said slyly, but Bishop Morehouse ignored him and went on. Their outlook is too narrow. Men should be men, not brutes. There will be violence and murder now and souring, sorrowing windows and orphans. Capital and labor should be friends. They should work hand in hand and to their mutual benefit. Ah, ah, now you are up in the air again, Ernest remarked dryly. Come back to Earth. Remember, we agree that the average man is selfish. But he ought not to be, the bishop cried. Hmm. And there I agree with you, was Ernest's rejoinder. Uh, so basically right now we've reached a spot where the woman got to speak for a tiny little bit, but she got pushed aside. So again, I'm still leaning towards just kind of general. I mean, again, this was written over a hundred years ago. I can't be too judgy, but you know, how groundbreaking can you be if the woman just never speaks and she's like the main narrator, but here we are Ernest with the priest back and forth for the whole chapter. And there I agree with you was Ernest rejoinder. He ought not be selfish. But he will continue to be selfish as long as he lives in a social system that is biased on pig ethics. <laughs> the bishop was aghast, and my father chuckled, as he did when his wife died. Yes, pig ethics, Ernest went on remorselessly. That is the meaning of the capitalist system. And that is what your church is standing for, what you are preaching every time you get up in the pulpit. Pig ethics! Exclamation point. There is no other name for it. Bishop Morehouse turned appealingly to my father, but he laughed and nodded his head. I am afraid Mr. Everhard is right, he said. Laissez-faire. <laughs> the let-alone policy of each for himself and the devil take the hindmost. That's weird. As Mr. Everhard said the other night, the function you churchmen perform is to maintain the established order of society, and society is established on that foundation. But that is not the teaching of Christ, cried the bishop. The church is not teaching Christ these days, Ernest put in quickly. That is why the working men will never, will have nothing to do with the church. The church condones the frightful brutality and savagery with which the capitalist class treats the working class. The church does not condone it, the bishop objected. The church does not protest against it, Ernest replied. And insofar as the church does not protest, it condones. For remember, the church is supported by the capitalist class. I had not looked at it in that light. Oh, that's where he wins right there. That was pretty easy, the bishop said naively. You must be wrong. I know there is much that is sad and wicked in the world. I know that the church has lost the, what you call, the proletariat. You never had the proletariat, Ernest cried. The proletariat has grown up, out of the, grown up outside the church, burp, and without the church. 
I do not follow you, the bishop said faintly. Then let me explain. With the introduction of machinery and the factory system in the latter part of the 18th century, the great mass of the working people was separated from the land. The old system of labor was broken down. The working people were driven from their villages and herded into factory towns. The mothers and children were put to work at new machines. Family life ceased. The conditions were frightful. It is a tale of blood. I know, I know, Bishop Morehouse interrupted with an antagonized, agonized expression on his face. It was terrible, but it occurred a century and a half ago. And there, a century and a half ago, originated the modern proletariat, Ernest continued, and the church ignored it. While the slaughterhouse was made of the nation by the capitalists, the church was dumb. It did not protest, as, it, as today it does not protest. As Austin Lewis says, speak, and that has a number which I will not follow. It'd be nice to learn these things, but then I'll never get back to my spot. Speaking of that time, those to whom the command, feed my lambs, was given, saw those lambs sold into slavery and worked to death without protest. The church was dumb then, and before I go on, I want you either flatly to agree with me or flatly to disagree with me. Was the church dumb then? Bishop Morehouse hesitated. Like Dr. Hammerfield, he was unused to the fierce infighting, as Ernest called it. The history of the 18th century is written, Ernest prompted. If the church was not dumb, it will be found not dumb in the books. I am afraid the church was dumb, the bishop confessed. Oh, another win. And the church is dumb today. There, I disagree, said the bishop. Oh, he's picking himself up. He's ready to start swinging again. Ernest paused, looked at him searchingly, and accepted the challenge. All right, he said. Let us see. In Chicago, there are women who toil all the week for 90 cents. Has the church mm -hmm, mm -hmm, protested? This is news to me, was the answer. 90 cents per week? It is horrible. Has the church protested? Ernest insisted. The church does not know. The bishop was struggling hard. Yet the command to the church was, Feed my lambs, Ernest sneered. And then, the next moment, Pardon my sneer, bishop, But can you wonder that we lose patience with you when you have protested to your capitalistic congregations at the working of children in the southern cotton mills? Children, six and seven years of age, working every night at twelve-hour shifts. They never see the blessed sunshine. They die like flies. The dividends are paid out in their blood. And out of the dividends, magnificent churches are builded in New England, wherein your kind preaches pleasant platitudes to the, to the sleek, full-bellied receptions of those dividends. I did not know, the bishop murmured faintly. His face was pale, and he seemed suffering from nausea. Then you have not protested? The bishop shook his head. Then the church is dumb today as it was in the 18th century. The bishop was silent, and for once Ernest forbore to press the point. And do not forget, whenever a churchman does protest that he is mm, discharged, 
I hardly think that's fair, was the objection. Will you protest? Ernest demanded. Show me the evils, such as you mentioned in our own community, and I will protest. I will show you, Ernest said quietly. I am at your disposal. I will take you on a journey through hell. And I shall protest. The bishop straightened himself in his chair, and over his gentle face spread the harshness of the warrior. The church shall not be dumb, exclamation point. You will, be you will be discharged, was the warning. I shall prove the contrary, was the retort. I shall prove, if what you say is so, that the church has erred through ignorance. And furthermore, I hold that whatever is horrible in industrial society is due to the ignorance of the capitalist class. It will mend all that is wrong as soon as it receives the message, and this message shall be the duty of the church to deliver. Ernest laughed. He laughed brutally, and I was driven to the bishop's defense. Remember, I said. Oh, she speaks. You see but one side of the shield. There is much good in us, though you give us credit for no good at all. Bishop Morehouse is right. The industrial is wrong. Terrible as you say it is, is due to ignorance. The divisions of society have become too widely separated. The wild Indian is not so brutal and savage as the capitalist class. Ooh, that's a little racist, he answered. <laughs> and in that moment, I hated him. Oh, good, because that was kind of racist. You do not know us, I answered. We are not brutal and savage, Prove it, he challenged. How can I prove it to you? I was growing angry. He shook his head. I did not ask you to prove it to me. I ask you to prove it to yourself. I know, I said. You know nothing, was his rude reply. There, there, children, father said soothingly. I don't care, I began indignantly, but Ernest interrupted. I understand you have money, or your father has, which is the same thing. Money invested in the Sierra Mills. What does that have to do with it, I cried. Nothing much, he began slowly, except that the gown you wear is stained with blood. The food you eat is a bloody stew. The blood of little children and of strong men is dripping from your very roof beams. I can close my eyes now and hear it drip. Drop, drip, drop, all, the, all about me. And suiting the action of the words, he closed his eyes and leaned back in his chair. I burst into tears of mortification and hurt vanity. I had never been so brutally treated in my life. Both the bishop and my father were embarrassed and, and perturbed. They tried to lead the conversation away into easier channels, but Ernest opened his eyes looked at me, and waved them aside. His mouth was stern, and his eyes, too. And in the latter, there was no glint of laughter. What he was about to say, what terrible castigation was going to give me, I never knew, for at that moment a man, passing along the sidewalk, stopped and glanced in at us. He was a large man, poorly dressed, and on his back was a great load of rattan, and bamboo stands, chairs, and screens. What the hell? Just like carrying a huge load of junk on his back. He looked at the house as if he was debating whether or not he should come in and try to sell some of his wares. Ah, uh, early Victorian salesman. 
That man's name is Jackson, Ernest said, and with that strong body of his, he could be at work and not peddling. I answered curtly, Notice the sleeve of his left arm, Ernest said gently. I looked and saw that the sleeve was empty. It was some of the blood from that arm that I heard dripping from your roof beams, Ernest. Oh, back to that again. That's, he just like takes an analogy and runs with it and just won't give it up. Ernest said with continued gentleness. He lost his arm in the Sierra Mills. And like a broken down horse, you turned him out on the highway to die. When I say you... I mean the superintendent and the officials that you and the other stockholders pay to manage the mills for you. It was an accident. It was caused by his trying to save the company a few dollars. Oh, he's so dedicated. The toothed drum of the picker caught his arm. He might have let the small flint that he saw in the teeth go through. It would have smashed out a double row of spikes. But he reached for the flint. His arm was picked and clawed to shreds from the fingertips to the shoulder. It was at night. The mills were working overtime. They paid a fat dividend that quarter. Jackson had been working many hours, and his muscles had lost their resiliency and snap. They made his movements a bit slow. That is why the machine caught him. And he had a wife and three children. Oh, that was tacked on at the end. And what did the company do for him, I asked. Nothing. Oh, yes, they did do something. They successfully fought the damage suit he brought when he came out of the hospital. The company employs very efficient lawyers, you know. You've not told the whole story, I said with conviction, or else you do not know the whole story. Maybe the man was insolent. Insolent? I'm going to move away from the mic. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha! His laughter was... Metastophelian. Great God. Insolent? And with his arm chewed off? Nevertheless, he was a meek and lowly servant, and there is no record of his having been insolent. But the courts, I urged, the case would not have been decided against him had there been no more to the affair than you have mentioned. Colonel Ingram is leading counsel for the company. He is a shrewd lawyer. Ernest looked at me intently for a moment, then went on. I'll tell you what you do, Miss Cunningham. You investigate Jackson's case. I already had decided to, or determined to, I said coldly. All right, he beamed good-naturedly, and I'll tell you where to find him. But I tremble for you when I think of all you are to prove by Jackson's arm. And so it came about that both the bishop and I accepted Ernest's challenges, They went away together, leaving me smarting with a sense of injustice that had been done me and my class. The man was a beast. I hated him. Then, and consoled myself with the thought that his behavior was what to be expected from a man of the working class. And that is the end of Chapter 2. So what did we learn here today? We learned that... Ernest Everhard is a giant, handsome man that can argue any point with the finest of people. Uh, I think it's weird and cheesy. I don't think that the author actually ever had these kind of conversations with real people. Because if he did, he'd find out that these kind of conversations are far more complex. 
I didn't grow up in the nicest neighborhood, and I think that if someone who was wealthy came out of nowhere and said to me, you are special, and you are the finest representative of your type of people, it would be both insulting, but also flattering in a weird way. So this entire book so far is masturbatory. And I know, oh, there's one of my cats. Uh, I know that the word masturbatory is not the most PG thing in the world, and I'm trying to make this a family-friendly podcast, but I think that most kids in the back seat or living room or dining room, <clears throat> if you're sitting around having dinner and listening to this, wouldn't uh, know what the word meant, and you don't have to describe it to them. But I think that this story has those problems. Uh, the woman, who's the narrator, finally got to speak. That was kind of nice. Uh, I'm a little bit weirded out by this is award-winning for the angle from a female perspective. is basically just a man's perspective. Uh, but I'm probably being a little too hard in the book. Let's find out as it keeps going on. I think that uh, the book will continue to have more dinner conversations, which is pretty darn boring. I mean, this is a guy that wrote books about uh, the mountains from a wolf's point of view. I would uh, like to think that there's more exciting things going on here. Like someone gets stabbed or something or has to survive uh, rushing waters. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I think that uh, it's okay so far. It's kind of weird, kind of cheesy. Not the best thing I ever read my entire life. Uh, Definitely something you give to a really young kid that has a lot of big ideas uh, and uh, they'll just feel really good as they read it. But uh, we'll find out as the book goes on. Does it get weirder or darker? Does it take a turn? Are there more fallibilities? Do the characters get a little bit deeper? We'll find out. But uh, in uh, other news, uh, like I said, the spider has not moved. He's still sitting over there, all hunched up in a little ball. And like I said, the... Uh, a couple days ago, I saw a spider on the floor and thought, that thing's got to be dead. It's been there for three days. I poked at it with a, the bottom of a lamp and crushed a couple of its legs as it tried to run away, and I felt horrible. So I had to make the decision to put it out of its misery, and that was weird. Um, so I'm not touching this spider on the wall because I don't want to destroy another life. But I call him Pete, and he is my friend, and apparently he loves the podcast. So Pete on the wall is my biggest fan. And uh, maybe someday I can make you my biggest fan. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And I hope that someday I can find a good track of classical music that's long enough to keep going as I do these little monologues.